0: chapter three of the merry-go-round by w somerset morne this librivox recording is in the public domain at last one afternoon of that very summer after the vesper service in the cathedral miss lantern wandering listlessly towards the door saw a young man seated at the back of the nave it was late so that he and she seemed to possess that vast building by themselves with glowing eyes he stared into vacancy as though his own thoughts blinded him to the gothic loveliness about him and his eyes were singularly dark his hair was fair and his face womanlike in its transparent delicacy of skin was thin and awful presently a verger went to him saying that the cathedral would be closed and as he rose paying no other attention to the man's words he passed within a yard of Bella, but in his abstraction saw her not. She thought no more of him, but on the following Saturday, going, as was her habit, to the afternoon surface, she saw the youth again, seated as before in the furthermost part of the nave, well away both from sightseers and from devout, a curiosity she did not understand impelled her to remain there rather than go into the choir, separated from the nave by an elaborate screen, where by right of her dignity a seat was reserved for her not far from her father's decano store. The boy, for he was little more, this time was reading a book, which she noticed was written in verse, now and again with a smile, he threw back his head, and she imagined he repeated to himself a line that pleased him. The service began, softened by distance, so that the well-known forms gained a new mystery. The long nooks of the organ peeled, reverberating along the vaulted roof, or wailed softly, like the voice of a young child, among the lofty columns. At intervals, the choir gave a richer depth to the organ music, and it was so broken and destined by obstructing stone that it sounded vaguely like the surging of the sea. Presently, it ceased, and the tenor's voice, the pride of the cathedral, rang out alone, and as so the magic-sounded power over all material obstacles, the melody of the old-fashioned anthem her father loved the undecorated music of a past age, rose towards heaven in a sobbing prayer. The book fell from the young man's hand, and an eager look came into his face as he drank in the silver harmonies. His face was transfigured with ecstasy, so that it resembled the face of some pictured saint glorified by a mystic vision of the celestial light. And then, falling on his knees, He buried his face in his hands, and Bella saw that, with all his soul, he prayed to a God that gave men ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of the world. What was there in the sight that made her own heart beat with a new emotion? And when he sat once more on his chair, there was a look in his face of exquisite content, and a smile of happiness trembled on his lips, so that Bella turned sick with envy what power was there in his soul that gave a magic colour to things that left her, for all her striving, still untouched? She waited till he walked slowly out, and seeing him knock to the verger at the door, asked who he was. I dunno, miss, was the answer. He comes here every Saturday and Sunday regular, but he never goes into the choir. He just sits there in the corner where no one can see him, and reads a book. I don't interfere with him, because he's very quiet and respectful. Bella could not tell why she thought so often of the fair-haired youth who had never so much as noticed her presence, nor why. On the Sunday that followed, she went again to the nave awaiting his appearance. Observing him more closely, she noticed the slimness of his figure and the shapely length of his hands, which seemed to touch things with a curious delicacy. Once their eyes met, and his were blue like a summer sea in Italy, and deep. A somewhat nervous woman, she would never have ventured to address a stranger, but the candid simplicity of his expression, in which strangely there was also a sudden appealing pathos, overcame her shyness, overcame also her sense of the impropriety of making friends with a person about whom she knew nothing. Some hidden intuition told her that she was arrived at the turning pond in her life, and courage now, was needed to seize with both hands a new happiness, and as though so the very stars were favourable, so it had occurred to her a way to scrape acquaintance. Excited, for it seemed very adventurous, she waited impatiently for such a day, and then, asking her favourite verger for his keys, after the service, went boldly to the youth, whose name even she did not know. "'Would you like me to take you over the cathedral?' She asked, without a word of introduction. "'We can go round alone, and it's very pleasant without the chatter of virtues and the hurry of a crowd.' He blushed to the very roots of his hair when she spoke, but then smiled charmingly. "'It's very kind of you,' he answered. "'I've wanted to do that always.' His voice was pleasant and low, and he showed no surprise whatever, but all the same Bella, now somewhat startled by her own audacity, thought it needful to explain why she ventured the suggestion. "'I've seen you here very often.' and it struck me that you would like to see the cathedral at its best. But I'm afraid you must put up with me.' He smiled again, and appeared now to take note of her for the first time. Bella, looking strict in front of her, felt his eyes rest thoughtfully on her face, and suddenly she seemed to herself old and lined and dowdy. "'What book is that you have?' she asked, to break the silence. Without speaking he gave it her, as she saw it was a little collection, evidently much read, for the binding scarcely held the leaves together, of Shelley's lyrical poems. Bella unlocked the gate that led into the apse, and locked it again behind her. Isn't it delightful to feel oneself alone here? He cried, and with springing steps and smiling eyes, walked forwards. At first he was a little shy, but presently the spirit of the place with his dark chapels and stone knights recumbent the tracery of his jewelled windows loosened his tongue and he poured forth his boyish enthusiasm with a passion that astonished Bella. his delight communicated itself to her so that she found a new enchantment in the things she knew so well his glowing poetic fervour seemed to gild the old walls with magic sunshine and as if those prisoned stones were strangely thrown open to heaven, they gained something of the outer freshness of green lawns and flowers and leafy trees. The warm breath of the west wind stow among the Gothic columns, lending a new splendour to the ancient glass and to the groanery a more living charm. The boy's cheeks were flushed with excitement, and Bella's heart beat as she listened enchanted with his pleasure he gesticulated a good deal and under the movements of his long exquisite hands her own for all her well-bred ancestry were short thick set and ungraceful the past of the mighty church rose before her so that she heard the clang of steel when knights in armour marched over the steel flags and saw with vivid eyes the historic scene when the gentlemen of kent in galley hose and doublet the ladies with ruff and farthingale assembled to praise the god of storm and battle because Howard of Effingham had scattered the armada of King Philip now let's go into the cloister he said eagerly they sat on a stone parapet looking out on the cool green sward where in time past Augustine monks had wandered meditative. There was a dainty gracefulness about the arcade, with the slender columns, their capitals delicately carved, recalling somewhat the cloisters of Italy, which, notwithstanding their cypress trees and their crumbling decay, suggest a peaceful happiness rather than the northern sense of stricken sin. The boy, though he knew the magic of the South only from books and pictures, was quick to catch the impression, and his face expressed a rather pitiful longing. When Bella told him she had travelled in Italy, he questioned her eagerly, and his young enthusiasm gave a warmth to her answers, which with any other, fearing to be ridiculous, she would carefully have suppressed. But the scene before them was very lovely in massive splendour the tall central tower looked down upon them and its stately beauty entered their souls so that the youth though he had never seen the monasteries of tuscany was comforted they sat for a while in silence you must be a very important person he said at last turning to her or we should never be allowed to remain here so long i dare say to a verger i am she answered, smiling. It must be late. Won't you come and have tea with me? he asked. I have rooms just opposite the cathedral gate. Then, catching Bally's look, he added with a smile, My name is Herbert Field, and I'm eminently respectable. She hesitated, for it seemed odd to drink tea with a youth whom she had never seen before, but she was mortally afraid of seeming prudish. And a visit to his rooms, whereby she might learn more about him, would add a finish to the adventure. Finally, her sense decided her that living life, not merely existence, for once lay under her hand. Do come, he said, I want to show you my books. And with a little persuasive motion he touched her hand. I should like it very much. He took her to a tiny room over a chemist's shop, simply furnished as a study, with a low ceiling and panelled walls, these were decorated with a few photographs of pictures by Pietro Perugino, and there were a good many books. It's rather poky, I'm afraid, but I live here so that I can always see the gateway. I think it's one of the finest things in Turkenbury he made her sit down while he boiled water and cut bread and butter. Bella, at first somewhat intimidated by the novelty of the affair, was a little formal. But the boy's manifest delight in her presence affected her so that she became gay and light-hearted. Then he displayed a new side of his character. The rather strenuous passion for the beautiful was momentarily put aside, and he showed himself quite absurdly boyish. His laughter rang out joyously, and, feeling less shy now that Miss Lantern was his guest, he talked unrestrainedly of a hundred topics that sprang up one after another in his mind. "'Will you have a cigarette?' he asked when they had finished their tea, and, on Bella's laughing refusal, "'You don't mind a smoke, do you? I can talk better.' He drew their chairs to the open window, so that they could look at the massive masonry before them and as though he had known bella all his life chattered on but when at last she rose to go his eyes grew suddenly grave and sad i shall see you again shan't i i don't want to lose you now i fancy you so strangely really he was asking miss Lanton to make an assignation but by now the dean's daughter had thrown all caution to the winds I dare say we shall meet some time in the cathedral. Womanlike, though she meant to grant all he desired, she would not give in too quickly. Oh, that won't do, he insisted. I can't wait a week before seeing you again. Bella smiled at him while he looked eagerly into her eyes, holding her hand very firmly, as though till she made some promise he would never let it go. Let's take a walk in the country tomorrow, he said very well she replied telling herself that there could be no harm in going with a boy twenty years younger than herself i shall be at the west gate at half-past five but the evening brought counsels of prudence and miss Lanton wrote a note to say that she had forgotten an engagement and was afraid she could not come yet it left her irresolute, and more than once She reproached herself because from sheer timidity she would cause Herbert Field the keenest disappointment. She told herself, sophistically, that perhaps, owing to the Sunday delivery, the latter had not reached him, and fearing he would go to the Westgate and not understand her absence, persuaded herself that it was needful to go there and explain in person why she could not take the promised walk. The Westgate was an ancient, handsome pile of masonry, which in the old days had marked the outer wall of Tonkinbury, and even now, though on one side houses had been built, a road to the left led directly into the country. When Bella arrived, somewhat early, Herbert was already waiting for her, and he looked peculiarly young in his straw hat. Did you get a note from me, she asked. Yes, he answered, smiling. Then why do you come? Because I thought you might change your mind. I didn't altogether believe in engagement. I wanted you so badly that I fancied you couldn't help yourself. I felt you must come. And if I hadn't? Well, I should have waited. Don't be horrid. Look at the sunshine calling us. Yesterday we had the grey stones of the cathedral. Today we've got the green fields and the trees. Don't you feel the west wind murmuring delicious things? Bella looked at him and could not resist the passionate appeal of his eyes i suppose i must do as you choose she answered and together they set off miss langton convinced that her interest was no less material than when she gave jellies to some motherless child knew not that john Cupid, laughing at her subterfuge danced gleefully about them and shot his silver arrows they sauntered by a gentle stream that ran northward to the sea, shaded by leafy willows, and the country on that July afternoon was fresh and scented. The cut hay, drying, gave an exquisite perfume, and the birds were hushed. I'm glad you live in the deanery," he said. I shall like to think of you sitting in that beautiful garden. Have you ever seen it? No. But I can imagine what it is like behind that old red wall, the shady lawns and the roses. There must be masses of roses now. The dean was known as an enthusiast for that royal flower, and its blossoms at the local show were the wonder of the town. They went on, and soon, half unconsciously, as though he sought protection from the hard world, Herbert put his arm in hers. Bella blushed a little but had not the heart to withdraw. She was strangely flattered at the confidence he showed. Very discreetly, she questioned him, and with perfect simplicity he told of his parents' long struggle to give him an education above their state. But, after all, he said, I'm not nearly so wretched as I thought I would be. The bank leaves me plenty of time, and I have my books, and I have my hopes. What are they? Sometimes I write verse, he answered, blushing shyly. "'I suppose it's ridiculous, but it gives me great happiness. And who knows, Some day I may do something that the world may will not willingly let die.' Later on, when Bella rested on the stile, and Herbert stood by her side, he looked up at her, hesitating. "'I want to say something to you, Miss Lanton, but I'm rather afraid.' "'You won't drop me now, will you? Not as I've found a friend?' i can't afford to lose her you don't know what it means to me having someone to talk to someone who's kind to me often i feel so dreadfully alone and you make all the difference in my life this last week everything has seemed changed she looked at him earnestly did he think he made no difference in hers she could not tell what stirred her of those blue appealing eyes asked so irresistibly for what she was most willing to give "'My father is going in Selenheim on Wednesday,' she answered, presently. "'When your work is over, will you come and have tea in the dinery garden?' She felt herself ten times rewarded by the look of pleasure that flashed across his face. "'I shall think of nothing else till then.' And Miss Langton found that her restless anxiety had strangely vanished. Life now was no longer monotonous, but sparkled with magic colour for an absorbing interest had arisen, which made the daily round a pleasure rather than a duty. She repeated to herself all the charming and consequent things the boy had said, finding his conversation agreeably different from the clerical debates to which she was used. They cultivated a refined taste in the chapter, and the archdeacon's second wife had written a novel, which only her exalted station and an obvious moral purpose saved from excessive indecency. The minor canons talked with gusto of the Royal Academy, but the Habit spoke of books and pictures as though art were a living thing, needful as bread and water to his existence, and Bella, feeling that her culture, somewhat ostentatiously pursued as an element of polite breeding, was very formal and insipid, listened with complete humility to a simple order. On Wednesday, almost handsome in summer muslin and a large hat, she went into the garden, where the tea-things were laid under a leafy tree. Miss Lay would have smiled cruelly to notice the care with which the dean's daughter arranged her position to appear at her best. The prophecy, The Garden's Restful Beauty, brought out all Herbert's boyishness, and his pleasant laughter ran across the lawns, ran like silver music into Bella's heart. Watching the shadows lengthen, they talked of Italy and Greece, of poets and of flowers, and presently, weary of seriousness, they talked sheer light-hearted nonsense. "'You know, I can't call you Mr. Field,' said Bella, smiling. "'I must call you Herbert.' If you do, I shall call you Bella. I'm not sure if you ought. You see, I'm almost an old fossil, and it's quite natural that I should use your Christian name. But I won't let you assume any airs of superiority over me. I want you to be absolutely a companion, and I don't care twopence if you're older than I am. Besides, I shall always think of you as Bella." She smiled again, looking at him with tender eyes. "'Well, I suppose you must do as you like,' she answered. "'Of course.' Then quickly he took both her hands, and before she realised what he was about, kissed them. "'Don't be foolish,' cried Bella, withdrawing them hurriedly, and she reddened to her very hair. When he saw her discomfort, boy-like.' He burst into a shout of laughter. Oh, I've made you blush. His blue eyes sparkled, and he was delighted with his little wickedness. He did not know that afterwards, in her room, Bella, the kisses still burning on her hands, wept bitterly as though her heart would break. End of chapter 3